Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, intro man. Brendan here with Mark, Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com, episode 108. Friday, the no, well, Friday, November the eighth, two thousand and nineteen. Take two, Mark. Um, and as we were just laughing, I started the recording and without hitting the record button. So here we go, take two. Although it was only about thirty seconds, or probably only ten seconds, wasn't it? So we weren't at least one hour into it um, before we hit redo. So, Mark, <laughs> you have been out. Camping, I hear, um, under the stars. I have been do, camping. Do you have a swag, do you? I do. I have a swag. We unfurl the swag. You need to explain to our non-Australian or our overseas or our visitors from another planet, Mark, what a swag is. It is, Brendan, a very small canvas tent, just big enough to fit your body in, um, and uh, you roll it up. You stick it under your backpack and you carry it around with you. Um, and I behave just like a jolly swag man. So you you just roll it. Where do you put it? You put it on the back of your ute? I put it on the top. I put it on the top. I strap it to the top. And um, <laughs> I'm talking about when you're actually sleeping in the swag. You throw it on the ground or you put it on the back of the ute and you sit it next to your esky and you have a couple of beers. I, I, it's rolled out on the ground. It get, comes with its own thin mattress um, and I just unfurl it. The mattress unfurls. And uh, I do have a, a, a car fridge, so it is a, 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 a you know, very comfortable arrangement. The bed is very comfortable. It is a bit like the space in a swag. It is effectively a very tiny tent in the shape of a body, um, but you're not going to get changed in there. It's not enough. It's you, you wouldn't want to be like a bit claustrophobic. Um, and you can. There's a whole lot of flaps you can undo, so it feels open. But it did rain on the weekend, so I had to close the flaps up. And um, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. It's always good to close your flaps, Mark. That's all I can Particularly say. when it's you're raining. A very, you're a very complex man, aren't you? You're into your swag, and you're also into your your six star resorts and diving expeditions. And um, I've always got to rough it, you know. <laughs> it's roughing it whichever way you look at it. Yes, that's right. Well, perhaps not. Perhaps not. Well, while you've been glamping, Mark, I have um, been working on the weekend. I just came back from the Rabbit Expo 2019, which, as it describes, it was an event about rabbits, and it was the second annual. Actually, they didn't have it last year, so let's maybe call it biannual, perhaps, um, in Melbourne here in Australia, and it had three streams, and I think we spoke about the first one way back two years you ago. You definitely did. Mark. Three streams, one for vets, one for nurses or technicians, and one for rabbit owners. And this year they doubled the exhibition space, Mark, because I think they had about, I'm trying to think, um, as I walk my mind around the room. It was probably 10 to 15 um, trade exhibits there, so it was fantastic, the amount of trade there. Um, vet numbers, uh, a bit of a tutorial because I think there was about 12 of them, so we just had sort of a square table arrangement um, and we had a bit of a, a tutor, a bit of a chat. Um, I, I gave one formal presentation to the vets on geriatric rabbit care and diseases of geriatric rabbits, which reminds me we should run that as a topic for a future podcast. So lock it in, Mark. Um, and then for the nurses and the owners, I just was involved with a Q&A. So it was a, a one hour with each of those, a Q&A question. And as you could imagine, the the owner Q&A was... Um, was a little bit of a challenge. It was interesting. What was the best but, question? Uh, what was the best owner question? Best owner question. Well, the most common question, Mark, was 
in relation to what you would think rabbit owners would be worried about and it was variations on the theme, what can I do to prevent my rabbit getting gut stasis or ileus? And um, so we had lots of sort of variations on the answer to that as far as sort of preventative things you can do and sometimes you can't prevent it because you don't know why it occurs in some um, and also looking for underlying causes obviously when we get the gut stasis in them that was probably the most common one the most interesting one was well um i i i You'd be surprised about this, Mark. I I told a few I was, jokes um, that, that, to the, to the I was from. I was headed towards <laughs> that. I was I, I was going to ask whether you were able to make anyone laugh. Well, I was quite proud of myself. I I thought at the very end of the Q and A for the owners session, I said, oh, "I've got I've got a bit of a rabbit joke I can tell you," and um, I told it and. Um, the room, I was going to say silent, was silent. No, it wasn't. They bro- they, it was uproarious laughter, Mark. I was quite proud. I was quite proud. They liked my joke. Wow. Mark. Yes, share it with us. It's probably not No, it'll be hilarious. Um, over, the, over the internet, interwebs. And it was both, well, he, let me, Set let the me, scene. Let me think of the punchline. I think I've got it. Set the scene. Well, here's the scene. What do you call a row of rabbits walking backwards, Mark? I have no idea, Brennan. What do you call a row of rabbits walking backwards? A receding hairline. Oh, God. Do you like that? Well, the punchline was I pointed at my own head as, as I was telling the punchline and that, that got them all laughing. So nothing but a bit of self-deprecation um, um, works, Mark, in this, this sort of situation. So, yeah, so we had a good time. And, um, it's, yeah, there was it, some, it some sound, of these. I was going to say it sounds great and I'm particularly impressed uh, the fact that the – Owners were talking about something as sophisticated as gut stasis and how to manage it. That's a the numbers increase, the sophistication of the owners increase. That's all a sign of a rising tide of uh, of a lagomorph, pet lagomorph um, care. I, I, it's impressive, Brendan. Well, these owners, as you could imagine, are fairly keen owners and uh, I think there was something like 60 to 70 of the owners in that room so that was the biggest room and the nurse or technician room had about 50 or 60 as well so no it's a really good turnout and yeah they're super keen and you know as as we all are some were quite quirky is probably the best way to um put it but um yeah we we i had a really good day so that was that was a whole day on on the saturday last saturday and um yeah i thoroughly enjoyed it and i expect that they'll be doing the same again next year um because it was such a success um perhaps my jokes were not but um the actual conference was so the rabbit expo for those in Melbourne region or want to come over to australia or have an excuse to come over to australia come over for the rabbit expo for a day and you might be able to put it on your work expenses or come over for our conference, Mark. And as we were talking off air, we have our annual conference here, our UPAV, Unusual Pet and Avian Veterinarians Conference, which is coming up in about two or three weeks, the end of November. And that also is this year is here in Melbourne. Um, you're looking forward to it, aren't you, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, all my, all my. Uh, I just have to explain to all our wonderful listeners, listeners, that my explosion of vitriolic language is only in response to the fact that I won't be able to attend this year, and I've made my formal apologies. I, I, it's, it is. I've got to say that um, it has been regularly a highlight of my year to spend time with people at UPAV, and whether it's uh, the old friends or whether it's the um, the the uh, um, new acquaintances, new they're all they're, uh, the speakers from overseas. Each time I go, one of the characteristics of UPAV that really strikes me is that they're my tribe, Brendan. They're they're people who share uh, not just an interest in the veterinary care of unusual and exotic and avian pets. They're people who share a bit of a life philosophy. It's probably one of the places that I feel most at home in the world. So it is with, yeah, a bit of anger and sadness that I register my failure to attend this year, work commitments and whatnot. And, you know, I have been travelling a bit, so I can't 
uh, take all the time off work. But um, we are sending, the practice is sending one of our um, colleagues uh, um, and uh, Dr. Lily is looking forward to meeting all the wonderful people I keep uh, um, I keep talking about and telling her how magical it will be. So don't don't let me down, Brendan. We will miss you, Mark. And actually, I will put a link to it in the show notes at vetgurus.com for those of you who still want to do a late registration, which is very typical of veterinarians, <laughs> isn't it? For regardless of what conference it is, um, vets are notorious for registering late for these sort of continuing education events. So even if you're overseas, all our listeners in in Scandinavia, for instance, um, you can still come out. Um, why not? Come and see us. Spend a few days. And our keynote speaker this year is Vittorio Capello, who I think most of you who have had anything to do with unusual pets or exotic pets will, will know Vittorio and his amazing his amazing skills as a small mammal practitioner. So he's our keynote speaker and he will be doing some lab sessions on the Saturday, um, rodent and uh, rabbit and guinea pig dentistry, Mark, is his, his um, lab session so, or practical session. So we're very much looking forward to those and I will report back to everyone, well, in, in just about a month after, after the conference is over. So, yeah, enough about the conference, Mark. Let's jump into some news stories. You've got a pretty long story here, so you better get stuck. I'm excited it. by it, though, Brendan. It's um, it is an outstanding story. Um, it is the 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 Cairns Post. I think was the August publication uh, that originally listed the story, and then it's um gotten on to our ABC, the Australian Public uh, uh, Public Network, the public. Um, TV network. It's about a huge skin, a huge snake skin found in far north Queensland. Um, so our good friend Stuart, Stuart Morris, um, was doing a bit of a bushwalk and uh, and he spotted the remnants of a snake skin and he thought it was uh, yeah pretty amazing. He took a few photos of it with his uh, with his phone um, and potted along his way. The, the Cairns suburb of Freshwater, the creek along there was where he was headed. I'm sure he didn't want to hang around too much because there are crocs in that area, as I understand. Anyway, on the way back, he saw the skin still there, so um, he rolled it up and took it home. It was a bit dry and dusty and crunchy, so he soaked it in the laundry tub um, and laid it out on the floor um, in the sun to dry, and then some marvellous photos of him lying next to it, Brendan. It's a it's about well, it's uh, it's measured out at seven meters long, um, and initially, Mister Morris thought it was uh, one of the um, scrub pythons. Uh, I've been up there and caught a couple of scrub pythons in the hinterland of Cairns, and they're big snakes, Brendan. But um, this, it uh, the color of the skin, um, uh, the um, the the. Uh, appearance. It didn't actually look so much like a shed, a shed skin. It actually looked like um, a python had been, you know, had had the skin taken off. Um, but it looks like it's the skin of a reticulated python. Um, one of uh, one of North Queensland snake experts, David Walton, did suggest it was a reticulated python, which um, is a little bit of a mystery, Brennan, because they're exotic and no one but zoos in Australia uh, keeps them. So maybe it's been smuggled and someone's tried to skin it and then dumped it. No one knows. But, um, geez, it's an impressive specimen. And, uh, and, and it does just, I don't know, leave me a little bit. If things like that are turning up in creeks in far north Queensland, it makes me wonder about, you know, the diseases they might be carrying or if a, uh, an actual um, wild wild python could get out there. Like um, if people are sneaking skins in, maybe someone has snuck a, 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 a smuggled a python in and if they got into far north Queensland, I have no doubt they'd survive. And if enough of them were released, we might have a bloody Florida Everglades on our hands, Brennan. Yes, and I just, I mean, he found it near that particular um, waterway mark and I would have thought that if somebody had just smuggled in a snake skin through customs um, to display it in their house etc why the hell would they end up dumping it near near a waterway um, 
apart from perhaps a prank, I suppose. But, um, yeah, the, the plot thickens with this. And, yeah, I do like he's very proud of his snake skin there, Mark, isn't he, in that um, second photo there. And um, I'm also very proud of the pun he unintentionally um, mentioned, um, said in the near the end of the article there, Mark. Um, Mr Morris said he planned to contact environmental authorities about his find. I've got a phone number to ring and I'm going to see if they can shed any light oh. on it, he said. <laughs> Um, so he's a man of my own heart. Uh, perhaps he's been out in the Cairns sun a little bit too much, Mark, is all I can say. Um, maybe he smuggled the skin in. Well, I shouldn't. Allegedly. Allegedly. Perhaps somebody smuggled it in and then gave it to him and now he's feeling guilty and um, said he found it near a creek um, near Waterway. Who knows? But, yes, very spectacular looking. And it does look pretty stiff, doesn't it? Um, he's holding it up in that first first photo there. I can see that um, he needed to soak it a little bit to soften it up. So, yes, that's our first news story about a, well, about a snake skin. And the second one, I have no segue at all, Mark. That's unusual for you. Yes, <laughs> it is. It is not. Um, seal population booms in Alaskan hotspot. And I, I picked this one, Mark, because I thought it was quite interesting that these Alaskans' northern fur seal population, which have been classified as depleted for, for several decades, um, they found a spot where tens of thousands of these fur seals like to sit and live and base themselves for their breeding season, and that is off Bogoslov Island. You've Mark. just wanted this article so you could <laughs> pronounce Bogoslov. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it is. It's it's just well, it's part. It's in the Bering Sea there, and um, yeah, it's pretty amazing because it's it, basically it's a volcanic island, isn't it, Mark? Because the surface, according to, to the article, which I, I originally got from Sydney Morning Herald, but I think it's been published elsewhere as well. I don't know whether they that's the original source for it. Um, the surface is covered with big ballistic blocks, some as big as 10 metres in length that were exploded out of the volcanic events, Mark. So they litter the surface and it has, I think it's erupted several times. It certainly had volcanic activity over, over the last five or 10 years. It had several events mark um but these well these seals love it and um the surveys yeah it had eruptions reading further on in 2016 and 2017 where they showered the landscape with rocks and killed all the vegetation <laughs> and yet the these they love it they love it there um, why, why do you think well, the million dollar question is why brendan why do you think they like it because well, I think it well it tells you in the article, Mark, if you actually spent the time to um, do a bit of research, um, it is the depth of the water there, Mark. Um, apparently, it's very deep water off that um, particular bit of rock there, and uh, it's where they go to catch their food there. So yeah, they they um, I'm not, and I'm trying to look for what they found in that area. But, yeah, they love that they fish off that area um, because it's got very deep water there. There we go. Um, yeah, that's it. That's all I've got to say about that, Uncle. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't want to read too much into it, Mark. Um, but Bogoslav Island, it is probably not on my list of places I want to go, but it is pretty spectacular looking. And good on those fur seals. Um, the main breeding area for the for that for the Bering Sea population is another another island, which is about four hundred kilometres away, um, where they've got about six hundred and thirty-five thousand seals there, Mark. So yeah, um, but the number of seals has increased around about five to ten thousand over the last couple of years. So they do like it. There, I love the idea. I love the idea that you're um, gradually producing uh, news stories that have a, um, you know, population growth uh, um, theme rather than our usual um, extinction-flavoured discussions. So this is a good one. It's good. It, I mean, we only had to invent an island with volcanic activity to get the population to grow. But, you know, small steps. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's... um. 
Well, who, who thought climate change could be a good thing? <laughs> okay, let's jump into our main topic this week. And, well, let me do the preamble for this one, Mark. It is a topic that we have sort of covered, but sort of not covered. Episode 20, way back in the time machine, and you can find this. if For those of our listeners who have not listened to every single episode, um, don't. Um, that's my first comment. But if you do want to go back and listen to another wildlife one, episode 20, which was called Wildlife Worries, where we did talk mainly about wildlife triage. Um, and we will cover that a little bit again here, Mark, for those of, who don't want to go back to episode 20 and, and listen. But we're going to talk, we are going to talk about wildlife rehabilitation. And you decided to select this topic this week, Mark. So it's a good one. And, um, yeah, let's jump into it. What are we going to talk about first about wildlife? Well, we've already done the, the uh, um, whole triage thing and a little bit of um, discussion about the the uh, the way that nurses should, uh, receptionists should get information. And there's just one thing I wanted to reiterate from that uh, episode, and that is get them to get as much data as possible, and particularly provenance data. Um, it often is a critical factor in enabling a release to know exactly where they've come from. So that just recapping that was one thing I wanted to do. But once they come to us, um, I think it's really um, important. Um, and it's one of the things that I've actually struggled with a little bit, Brendan, and I'll be interested to know how you do it. I'll tell you how we do it. Um, it's making sure they get looked at. So very often, We've got a, a full appointment schedule with no white space. Someone walks into the front counter with um, usually, you know, common things happen commonly. So one of the common species, the nurses uh, do the triage, which we've talked about before, and then they set the animal up. And um, and it definitely has uh, in the distant past been the case that um, – we sometimes would struggle to find the time to look at them. So we now make sure that there is some time set aside in our scheduler and and we do charge it out. That's probably the key thing because our veterinarians, uh, you know, want to make sure that their time is productive um, and and if they've got clients, animals who are paying, they'll obviously prioritise that. But um, we set up an in-house system where we have a fund that we can use for these. And if the public contribute to that, that's great, but they don't always. Um, and our, our local wildlife rescue organisation really struggles with funds. So we we do charge them a very modest amount, but, um, but making sure that charges are made puts it into the vet's mind that it's, you know, uh, you know, not a. I don't have to focus on just the revenue things. I can look at this one as well and schedule time to do the right thing by them. So that's my first point. Just make sure someone lays a hand on them as quickly as possible, guided, of course, by the triage of the um, uh, the uh, admitting um, reception slash veterinary support personnel. Absolutely, and it's and it's something we have mentioned before and we'll keep on mentioning because unfortunately it still happens doesn't it in veterinary clinics and it's a challenge for new graduates isn't it Mark and and nurses who who uh, I was going to say not unsure of themselves who are, who are scared of the boss I suppose is probably a better way of putting it where where that animal may be just placed in a little box and put out back so so really getting into everybody's head that hey we're here for the animal and we need to have it assessed very quickly um, to make decisions very early on about pain relief, etc. Um, and then a more thorough workup, if appropriate, is then still provided appropriately and not left to the very end of the day when everybody says, oh, what about that bird or that reptile or that mammal that was brought in? Gee, we better have a look at it. So, yeah, it's something we need to really... Um... And the good news with that, Mark, is um, it is taught better in the universities that I've been here in Australia and not, oh no, you're laughing because you think it's by me. It's no. You teach um, it. You definitely teach it. And, and, one, but and yeah, I'm perfectly I'm, happy to endorse <laughs> the quality of teaching uh, of this particular topic has improved dramatically, particularly south of the border. <laughs> 
Oh, I, I don't know what to say there, Mark. Yeah, you've you've painted me into it, put me into a little corner. It is definitely the case. It is def, it's definitely the case that um, that there's a marked increase in the interest of students too. The the fact that um, uh, young people coming into vet school uh, definitely have a, you know, the, the, in in. In sort of blunt terms, I suppose, a generation ago it was uh, production animals and household pets, whereas almost, you know, uh, well over half the vets that get involved in uh, vet school, at uh, they're interested in, in wildlife. They're interested in conservation. They have an awareness that wasn't there, and you're exactly right, every every, every year when I give my <laughs> small number of lectures, Mark, um, I do ask them very early on, probably in the first first presentation, how many of you are interested or want to be a wildlife slash unusual pet slash exotic veterinarian. And, yeah, these days it's probably 20 to 30 of those vets out of the 120 or so in the class that put up their hand, whereas 10 years ago it would be one or two. So, yeah, they're, they're certainly much more aware and and keen on um, wildlife care, so so that's good. And, and, and yeah, there's nothing to do with me, Mark. It has nothing to do. Oh, you've with been me. you've been eternally so, raising the standard, Brendan. And I think, but I think that the, I do uh, shout out to um, those new members of our profession. And I know from talking to them that they often come into their course with a, a, literally an objective to work in a zoo or some conservation uh, area. And and there aren't that many well-paid positions um, and the people that get them tend to hang on to them because they love the work so much. But even the vets who uh, don't end up in those positions, they still um, cultivate their interest in uh, wildlife and conservation through uh, their, you know, in in as complementary to their the the routine work that they might do with production animals or horses or um, or uh, uh, our small animals, and so so I think it is definitely a growing area, and um, you should take credit; you've contributed to it. I have no doubt. But the next thing, the next thing, no, what, when when yeah, when, no. when you are teaching these <laughs> bubbly, bright-eyed students, um, the basic first aid, you 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 def- definitely have to emphasise analgesia. That's one of our uh, analgesia, and and um, and just simple things to make sure the animals stay alive. In terms of making sure that they're hydrated, making sure that they uh, they have a refuge within the enclosure, that they're um, thermally supported. These are the sorts of things that we try to set up. You know. As the animals come into hospital, they're not left in a situation where they have to wait several hours for these things. Definitely, definitely. And I think we went into fair detail in that last, that episode number 20 about this sort of triage, Mark. So we'll just sort of quickly summarise that. And it's, yeah, it's it's not panicking, isn't it? It's going back to basic basic systems and, and first aid with them, keeping the animal alive, fluid support, pain relief, as you mentioned, enclosure set up, what, keeping, keeping the enclosure, having an enclosure that's that's warm, dark and quiet is what I usually tend to stress for most of these species. That's what you want to try and um, de-stress them and provide them with the appropriate conditions for them. Um, and, yeah, we go into more detail in that episode 20 about all the triage aspects. So I think we'll sort of gloss over that aspect Mark and, and talk about the, the meaty bits that we wanted to chat about this week that I'm sure you're itching to get into, Mark. And that's well, and that's how quickly you have to decide whether or not to kill the animal. <laughs> is my summary for it, Mark. So, do you want to take that as the, I do, uh, I do. kick off? I point do indeed. Um, and I think it's uh, like really, it you know, it's fundamental to this sort of work. And I think even uh, before. You know, and I'm sure with your students uh, that one of the first things you have to get across is the concept of making these tough decisions at as early a stage as possible. And there are, uh, particularly with protected wildlife here in Australia, all our uh, wildlife is protected, um, and there are uh, leg- legislative mandates about what needs to be done. Um, and so everyone needs to make themselves aware of the 
legislative requirements in their jurisdiction. Um, and some of these legislative requirements talk about, you know, the the resources that are needed um, to get them back to the wild. But um, most of them are based on the principle of uh, that the animals be fit for release at some point. And so I know that when we have many people, many good Samaritans, mem- members of the public, the MOPs who bring animals in, um, they are very emotionally committed to the animals and they often, I often get into little bits of arguments about, uh, you know, well, it might have something horrible and might not be fit for release. Can't I keep it as a pet? Um, and that that is, uh, particularly in Australia here, that's not permitted under the legislations in our various states. Um, and we do have to have a clear path, um, a relatively quick, clear path uh, for an animal to be returned to the wild. And I think the key there is, the actual word rehabilitation, their markets, getting that animal back out there. And that's a whole aim of the legislation. Hopefully the legislation in all jurisdictions, Mark, um, with wildlife in that the whole thought process there is, hey, this animal is injured. It is not a pet. It will never be a pet. And let's do our best to assess it assess it quickly and, and, and confidently, hopefully, and, and, and appropriately. And if we cannot get it back to where it would survive there back out in the wild. And there's, 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 there's one other point that we need to sort of talk about and we'll use it with a couple of case report examples, won't we, Mark, in that in, in theory you may be able to treat the injury that certain wildlife species come in with, but that you may treat as routine in a, in, a, in another species, but trying to recover the animal or, or, or medicate it while it's recovering from its injuries is well nigh impossible with some of these species. So you do have to make a tough decision early on that, yeah, in theory we might be able to fix this particular issue with the patient, but in practice it's how the hell are we going to house this big kangaroo, for instance, for several weeks while we're trying to treat it? And we can't, so we have to end up making a decision to put it to sleep there. So, yeah, it's, it's fit for release. And that's a, well, one, one, one I'll ask you, Mark, is that then classically the fit for release as far as the raptors, raptors especially, the birds of prey would be, what happens if a raptor, if a bird of prey has an injury, where it loses vision in one eye, Mark. What's the thoughts on that? Well, um, it's it's pretty clearly the case um, that uh, any diurnal raptor that loses vision is not going to survive in the wild. And if you uh, um, do not make the appropriate assessment, and one of the things that I would say about that, Brendan, is that it is a surprisingly common thing and... Um, and most of our uh, our diurnal raptors, the birds of prey that operate in the day, um, they the sorts of injuries they get if they're hit by a car or they strike strike power lines, they regularly detach their retina, um, and it is an easy thing to overlook, and their vision is compromised. But if you don't identify that, and you solve all their other problems and organise for them to be released, uh, you'll be consigning them to a uh, to a a um well a horrible shortened painful life so don't do it but having said that brendan it is there is a um uh um i suppose a, a when it comes to our nocturnal birds of prey our particularly our owls um they're animals that um well, there's some good evidence to show. There's an in, an interesting pair of powerful owls. Powerful owls are the largest of our um, hawk owls that live in Australia, and uh, they're very closely monitored uh, by bird nerds. And um, there's a famous pair in Sydney, in the southern suburbs of Sydney, um, that uh, each of the pair has an eye injury. Um, they've obviously been pecked by, well, maybe not obviously, but they are commonly attacked uh, by um, other birds um, and they do sustain eye injuries. And this pair, each of them has an eye injury um, and uh, they have, on one occasion at least, uh, raised, they've raised many chicks, but they did uh, three or four years ago raise a chick that had one 
uh, one damaged eye itself as well. So um, these birds successfully reproduce. And so there is a question about um, birds like that and considering their release. I would say even with powerful owls, um, a bird as special and unusual as that, I would probably euthanize a bird that had an eye problem. If it was in the wild and it had an eye problem and it had established territory and a partner, then it may survive and contribute to the wild population. Um, but I think a bird that's entered care, as you've quite rightly pointed out, uh, may not have the reserves it needs to establish a territory, attract a mate, and uh, contribute to the wild population with only one eye. So, um, so I think that's a very long way of answering. If they do answer, no. <laughs> exactly what I was saying. That's what I was after, Mark. There, thank you very much. <laughs> no, um, um, there is another out for some of these animals too, not just these birds with. Um, eye injuries mark um, that we need to sort of briefly mention as well and that and I'm sure the same will be occur elsewhere if if the animal is unfit for release back into the wild but it perhaps is an important species or a endangered or critically endangered species then obviously they may consider taking that animal into into an institution like a zoo or a research institution um, but you do but I do so, think you have to be careful one of the uh, things that happens to us regularly is that the the very common species that we might see, um, people are always keen for us to find a, a spot in an institution for a tawny frogmouth um, or something like that. Um, and and look, I, I tend to not raise people's hopes um, in any species. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, Mark. And I think, well, the classic one that we deal with with that is the... the the conundrum of the possums, um, whether it's ringtail or, or brush-tail possums, and they're handed in um, to wildlife carers and wildlife care. Some wildlife carers go out and actively recover um, animals that may have um, been um, in a pouch or on a hot day. We get lots of possums falling out of trees on hot days down here, Mark. I'm sure you get the same and wanting to rehabilitate and release them, some with injuries, some not with injuries. And, you know, as a species, I think possums are the Australian native possums, and I'm sure with some of the other species, their whole life strategy is that they throw out as many youngsters as they can, hoping that only a few of them might survive. And we as humans go out there and we catch up all of these animals um, and try and increase the population by releasing them back out there and and um, that's where we run into trouble because we're trying to find a spot where you can release them even if they are 100% fit um, back out there in the wild can be a, a challenge to put it mildly. So, uh, so one of the things that we do as part of the triage is try to answer the question is this a natural event or is it um, something yes. that's caused by humans? Now I feel much more comfortable going on with an animal that uh, has had its problems caused by humans when I can see a pathway for it to return to the wild. But many of these natural events, and like you said, um, uh, animals, uh, the possums being affected by heat or um, another good example are the... Uh, uh, the short, uh, the shearwaters, the um, the the uh, mutton birds that fly vast distances um, up to um, you know the Arctic ring, and then back down to Australia to breed. And those birds, uh, it's a natural part, a natural attrition of the less healthy birds to be, you know, to collapse on the beach and die. Um, and so collecting those birds up and sticking stressed birds into um, boxes and taking them to veterinary hospitals uh, is actually counterproductive and, and interferes with the natural process of removing the weaker birds from the population. Yes, but it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it, when you have that individual as the member of the public who brings in a species and trying to explain that whole species aspect to them rather than the individual animal in front of you it can it can 
can be a hard conversation, can't it? Um, oh, very hard, yes. And and people are always, you know, they've invested their time and emotional energy and care. They want a positive outcome for this animal that they're committed to. And so we do end up sometimes being, well, it's an, I'm, I'm on full sweary mode this week, Brendan. It's a bastard to have to tell these people that, and they think you're a bastard because you're telling them that, Time's come for this animal to go no further, and uh, unfortunately, I'm going to euthanize it. Yes, it's it's not much fun there, um, and it's a it's an education process, process, isn't it? With the mark, I mean the the one that I half jokingly say to some of the students when we're doing tutorials, what are you going to do if if a if a parent and a young child bring in a, a bird that has fallen out of an, a native bird that's fallen out of a nest, um, a fledgling, and they've raised it from from for several weeks or months and and just fed it mince, and they bring that bird into you because it is now a little bit wobbly on its feet and it um, it it um, no longer needs to exist that bird because you look at it and it has a rubbery jaw beak and um, it's um, obviously been on, been on a poor diet. It's been imprinted uh, and there's no way it will be released back into the wild. And even if it was a pet, um, it's almost at the point of no return anyway. Um, you don't wring the neck of the bird in front of them and say you're a very bad person, little Billy, um, for, for grabbing this bird out of the nest and um, slap them around and send them out. Um, I, I try and, I, you know me, I try and take the, the gentle approach with them and I take the bird out the back before I wring its neck um, and I gently explain to them, hey, next time you have a, have a bird that falls out of the nest, give us a call, we'll put you on to Mark the bird carer, the bird raiser, guru, and uh, Mark will raise this bird. He lives in our local area and he will raise this bird without having it imprinted um, and he'll have a little soft release with the bird and you'll go out with Mark when it's time to release the bird. Mark will give you a call. Billy, you can go out with Mark and your mum and your dad and um, you can all hug and release the bird off into the sunset, Mark. Um, it's just like you, just like those students, Brendan. You're always seeking an opportunity to educate. You just are relentless. And then you, you put a tag on the bird and you'll find it dead a few days later, <laughs> no, no doubt. But, um, yeah, so. It, it is definitely the case. Um, the uh, birds, uh, particularly this time of year, it's um, one of the. In fact, I'd put a live track um, <laughs> sentinel on the, on, the, um, on the bird, probably. Um, Microchips Australia probably have a, an excellent product for use. <laughs> <laughs> this sponsored section of the uh, podcast is brought to you by the wonderful people at Microchips Australia. No, I think it is a good thing to, um, you know, to talk to them about uh, setting up um, little supportive nests for young birds who may have uh, just fledged a little bit early. Um, a few, there are things that you can educate uh, people to encourage them to take a greater interest in these wild animals and understand what's going on with them. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think it's a, uh, and particularly young birds, they're, they're very often, uh, you know, two or three days after they fled, after they fledge, they can be collected by humans before they've become strong enough to fly. And just sometimes setting them up in a safe environment near their parents without predators around is enough to get them over the hurdle. So, yes, but it is, yeah, it's a I'm being facetious with all that, but it's very, it's, it's and I do need to, difficult. I do need to point out that, um, at your practice's own cost. You practice multi uh, multi level euthanasia where the animals are anaesthetized first before intravenous overdose is done, even with your wild animals. So, talking about wringing its neck is uh, is just um, well, incorrect. Yeah, not yes, something you would absolutely. do. Absolutely. So, yes, preparing for release, Mark. So. Let's say we do have a species that we think has a very good chance of release and it needs a little bit of rehab first. What sort of steps do you normally go through in order to get it back out there? Well, the key thing here is an excellent uh, network of rehab 
workers of um, of the people who are trained by some of the uh, wildlife rehabilitation groups. The um, in New South Wales we have wires, and um, locally we have the Native Animal Trust Fund, and there's volunteers there who have considerable expertise. I often learn things from them, Brendan. And um, but that's a, that's a fantastic point in that. I, it's it's like clients. You want to encourage the good ones and sack the bad ones. <laughs> it's so true. And it's, the same. it's the same with wildlife carers. There's, there's an increase in number of fantastic wildlife carers um, here in Australia, and I'm sure the same overseas um, countries as well, um, whereas in the past there was a lot of people who went into the, the wildlife care business or industry or area um, with the wrong reasons, Mark, and um, you could get a licence without much training or, or, or sort of care for the animals. Um, but these days there's an increasing number of fantastic people with it. But you need to encourage, especially for vets and nurses who don't have much experience in this area or are new to the industry, you need to encourage the good carers in your oh, region. They are, they are such a... Um Bonus, yeah, 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 and and they're absolutely not like I mean they're great at all stages, but at this stage where the animals are going to need uh, some um, exercise, they're going to need physical therapy, they're going to need to be forced to move around, they're going to have to have their weight monitored, they're probably going to have um, a period of time where um, their activities encouraged by variable feeding by. Um, maybe feeding them a bit less, maybe feeding them at different stations, maybe soft releases where they're fed outside the cage. Um, we do have, we're lucky to have a network of uh, carers who do have locations. They actually uh, scout locations where they suspect territory will be um, not taken. So maybe some uh, rehabilitated um land where uh, uh, plantings have occurred and they're not fully populated with possums or birds yet and so they're much better places to consider release. Of course there is the uh, legislative requirement that they're released, the animals are released as close as possible to the place that they were picked up so that they don't spread disease um, and they're not released in other animals' territories. But good carers will make sure these things happen, Brendan. Are you with me? Are you with me? No, we've lost Brendan. <laughs> well, I have to put myself on mute at least once per episode, as you know, Mark. I was just having a little swig of water there, Mark. Um, yes, no, I agree one hundred percent with them um, with you on that point, and that's where that's where documenting everything comes to the forefront there, Mark, um, from the minute that animal comes in with the member of the public and you have your little care sheet or admission oh, form yes. for wildlife. And uh, I think we mentioned that in episode 20 as well, where you just list all the most important things, you know, where did you find it, what have you fed it, how long have you had this animal, whereabouts in the backyard or, the, or the, you know, because you know, I'm sure you get the same, Mark. We've had people bring wildlife to our clinic and the particular individual, that wildlife um, specimen, was picked up hundreds of kilometres away and the owners were on the way back home from a holiday. They picked up the bird or the reptile or the small mammal and just kept driving back home and their home happened to be not far from our clinic and the animal was picked up literally hundreds of kilometres away. Um, so getting it back out into that spot or that region can be a bit of a challenge with those ones as well. So documenting everything and then documenting all your treatment and then the good carers and the good wildlife rehabilitators will also document um, the soft release or the release of the animal as well. And uh, increasingly there's, there's research being done with, with species where they're radio tracking and, and collar um, and tagging animals and, and seeing how they go back in the wild and, and getting some hard evidence, Mark, about how well these animals do or don't survive when they get put back out there in the wild. And the unfortunate bit about that is that um, you need to be very selective about not only what species you do release but where you release them, as you hinted there, Mark, because you may just be releasing a species into an area that's already either overpopulated with, with similar species or with predator species or in an area where there's very little 
um, food for that animal. So um, it's going to die a pretty horrible death within several days or so. Um, and they have certainly shown that with a fair number of species. So um, it can. It's not all roses, Mark. Um, with some of these things, we like to send the the good old days where everybody used to have a group hug and you'd release the animal, and and everybody would say, "Well, that's that job has been done." Um, we now know that um, we may be releasing that animal to die a horrible death, and that's where making that decision fairly early on about um, all of these aspects and making the hard decision often to euthanise the animal um, is well. I love um, reciting the wisdom of one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Deb Monks, who um, rather succinctly said that euthanasia is is not a bad welfare outcome, and sometimes the difficult part of that process is convincing the member of the public that uh, what you're doing is the best for the animal, but often it is the best for the animal, so don't be afraid of doing it is my tip. Correct, Mark. Well, I think on that point, there's more we could talk about with general wildlife rehab um, in more detail, and I think we'll do a, a part three of this with a couple of the other aspects that I think we need to touch on in the future. But I think our time is up because last month we went way over our data allowance with our <laughs> with our. Um, with our hosting a company there, and I got a little slap on the wrist there, Mark, um, from them, but um, we didn't have to pay any extra, which is good, um, and that's where it's good to have supporters. So um, how's this for a segue? Um, go to vetgurus.com and click on our link to patreon.com and give us a cup of coffee equivalent. Send us 2 or $3 or $5 um, or $10 um, as a donation to help our running cost for the podcast. And with that little plug, Mark, I think it's time for us to get out because Mr. Outro Man's jumping in and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Hold up. 